So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke 17. Luke 17. If you weren't here last week to listen to the introduction to our new series, our Realign series, which we are running parallel to our studies in Luke, I would encourage you to, uh, to jump on YouTube and watch it, or if you've got iTunes or Spotify, you can jump on there and listen to it as well, just so that you don't get left behind. It's going to be a, an important and also challenging series for us, um, and it's just important that we, we follow this along. But today we continue with our studies in Luke. And you may remember just before the Advent season, Jesus, or we'd left Jesus as he was teaching his disciples about the dangers of false teachers and of false teaching. False teachers and false teaching. And today we follow on from that point as Jesus teaches his disciples another lesson. This lesson is all about rebuking, Repenting and forgiving. Rebuking, repenting and forgiving. And in the context of our passage today, we're going to explore these three areas. So just for context, I will start a few verses. I'll start at verse 1 of chapter 17, just to give us the context here. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. This is our verse for today. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, it's a joy to be able to open your word, to explore the depths of your truth, Not always as easy to apply it to our lives, but we, Lord, thank you, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us in doing that. That you've placed us in a body of people that we call the church to help us as we do that. So, Lord, as we explore these couple of verses, I just pray that you open our hearts, you open our ears to receive what it may be that you need to tell us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this word rebuke isn't a word that we often hear in our everyday vocabulary, is it? Uh, but, but the act of rebuking is very much something that we do see on a regular basis in our everyday lives. To rebuke, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, is to strongly and sharply disprove or criticise someone because of their actions or their behaviour. 
So as an example, you may start a new job and your job is quite a dangerous one. So you are given rules and regulations, strict rules for safety to protect you and others. But you break those rules, putting yourself and others in harm's way. And your boss comes and rebukes you. Your boss comes and rebukes you, i.e., he or she strongly and sharply disproves of your actions and your behaviour. I won't ask if anyone's been rebuked by their boss. I know I have in the past. Not by the elders yet. Who knows? Or maybe we could look at another example. Say your teenage son or daughter comes rolling in at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning after a heavy night drinking and they are drunk and they wake the household up. What are you going to do? Well, you should be firstly rebuking them. Firstly, because they're drunk. But secondly, you should be rebuking them because they've woken the household. Sleep is precious, is it not? Absolutely. But I would also suggest that most of the men in this room have been on the receiving end of a rebuke in their life. (laughs) The reason you're laughing is because you know it's true. You know it's true. Picture the scene. (laughs) Picture the scene here. It's Saturday morning. Right, whether you still live at home with your parents or, 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 or with your wife, they're going out and they've left you a list of things to do. <laughs> Thinking you have all the time in the world, you adopt a similar pose to this, which Jonathan is going to put up on the screen. <laughs> Who's ever been, whoever's thought, uh, whoever's done this, come on. Well done, Jonathan. Honesty, honesty. Time goes by. You forget about the time. You forget about the jobs. And they return home to find you enjoying yourself. Trying to eat, I don't know how you eat crisps like that, but you're enjoying yourself, watching TV or whatever it may be, and they notice the list of jobs that they had given you to do, very politely asked you to do, has not been done. What happens? Do you not feel the full force of their anger and rebuke against you? Yes, we do. We do. And then you know as well as I do, it's at this point where all the excuses come out. You n- come on. You know it's true. Everyone's sitting there really quiet now. I'm not feeling well, so I just wanted to lay down on the bed or on, on the sofa. Or I forgot, which is just the honest answer. Right? Or one that I have been guilty of in the past... I was just about to do it. (laughs) Hmm. You see, the act of rebuking has been a part of life since the fall of humanity. And throughout the scriptures, we see examples of rebuking in action. We see God rebuke the serpents in the Garden of Eden when tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from the, from the forbidden tree. We see God rebuke Cain for killing his brother Abel. We see examples of God's faithful prophets and apostles rebuking throughout scripture. Samuel rebuked King Saul 
for his unlawful sacrifice. Nathan rebuked King David for the adultery of Bathsheba. John the Baptist rebuked King Herod for living with his brother's wife. And the list could go on, on and on and on. Now, that rebuke can be brought upon anybody. In this moment, in our text today, Jesus is challenging his disciples to be ready to rebuke a particular people. A particular people. And those people are our brothers and sisters in faith, in the church. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. I'm reading from the ESV, but the root word there can refer to both brother or sister. So if your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. But also within this short statement, Jesus gives the grounding that justifies the rebuking of of our brothers and sisters in faith. What is that? What is the grounding that gives us the justification to rebuke our brother or sister? It's, It's there. Who said that? Sin. Sin, sin, full stop. If we see our brother or sister sinning, that is our justification. He says, if your brother sins, if your brother or sister sins, then rebuke them. Remember, and we, we've talked about this, we've talked about this a lot in Luke's gospel, have we not? Sin. The challenge is, if Jesus taught, teaches about it, then we teach about it. Yeah? yeah? And we, if Jesus keeps coming back to it, then we keep coming back to it because there's a reason why. But just to refresh your memory, sin is any thought or action that goes against God's righteous divine law and standard for right living and right acting as per he has given us the guidance in his word. Now, within the framework of how Jesus has established his church to function, including us here at Welcome, elders in their official capacity have the, if you will, the final responsibility of rebuking members of the flock when required and is justified. But before the elders should ever get involved in any official capacity, each and every one of us as members of Jesus' church out of love for one another, has a responsibility to rebuke other members of the body. But only if we see them falling into sinful ways that will result in them falling short of God's standard for right thinking and right living. And we rebuke them because their actions could not only be hurting themselves emotionally, physically, and spiritually, but also hurting other people. Other people within the body. Leading them astray. Leading them off the path. Paul alludes to this, does he not? This this idea that um, the sin of one can, can affect the whole body of Christ. 
He alludes to that in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's the point of what he's trying to make. If you allow sin in the body of Christ to continue unchallenged, it will spread. It will spread slowly and affect others within the body as well. So, let's have an example of this. I desperately want one of these purple chairs in my office at home. I really don't, but just work with me. I really want one of these purple chairs because I think it will just work in my office, work with the decor, okay? So I take one without asking. Uh, Naughty, exactly. I take one without asking. What have I done? There are two things that I've done here. Stolen's one. What did I do before I stole it? Coveted it. I coveted and I stole. God said we are not to cover and steal, i.e. desire that which isn't mine and take that without asking. So in this instance, I have clearly sinned because I have knowingly broken God's divine law and standard that he instituted for me to live right on this earth. So I take the chair home. Kelly, seeing my sinful ways, follows Jesus' commands in how to deal with a sinning brother or sister in the church, as recorded by Jesus in Matthew 18. What does that say? Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault between you and them alone. And if they listen to you, you have gained your brother and sister. Isn't that the outcome we all want? Amen. So, using that as Kelly's foundation, she comes to me and she rebukes me, i.e. she strongly and sharply disproves of my actions and my behaviour. She does it in love, but she strongly disproves of my actions and behaviour. And she challenges me by reminding me that I am breaking God's standard for right living and right acting. And the reason she lovingly rebukes and challenges me in this way is in the hope that I will see the error of my ways and I will repent. And she doesn't like the chair. (laughs) So Jesus has said, if your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. But he goes on to say, and if they repent, forgive them. If they repent... Forgive them. So what does it mean to repent and forgive? Let's look at them. Repentance can be likened to a moment of uh, remorseful revelation. A realisation, if you will, that causes us to stop, to change the course of our thinking or our actions. But here is the thing. Repentance is is never guaranteed. Never guaranteed that someone will repent. So in the context 
of me, Kelly, in the chair. Sounds like a book, doesn't it? Me, Kelly, in the chair. Okay? There is two ways that this can now go, this conversation after Kelly's challenged and rebuked me. I can either not repent or I can repent. Okay? So let's look at these, two scenarios. First one, I don't repent. So Kelly challenges me. I don't see the harm in what I'm doing. I don't see there's any problem with my actions and I definitely don't see there's any need for me to repent. Furthermore, the sin that I am living in that's, 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 that's aided, if you will, in me committing this crime continues to bury itself deeper into my heart, into my thinking, into my world, because that's what sin does. Sin is a poison. And I start stealing other things from the church. Oh, this will look nice in my office. <laughs> I wouldn't get it in there, but well, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to pinch this mission praise book. But that's what—that's the consequence, isn't it? If we don't deal with sin, yeah. if we start stealing, we come prone to stealing, don't we? It becomes easy to steal. That's how the poison works. So, what does Kelly now do? Mm. She continues to follow the guidance given by Jesus in Matthew 18, which says, and I quote, but if they do not listen, if Craig does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, Kelly, knowing that I'm, I'm not listening, grabs Barbara. Right? Uh, uh, and grabs Ben. Okay? She grabs Ben and Barbara and says, Look, I've got a real issue with Craig and I need you to come give it, I need you to come and support and be a witness. So Kelly comes back to me and she challenges me with Ben and Barbara. Well, what happens if I still don't repent? What happens if I still don't see there's a problem? Well, Jesus goes on. Matthew 18, 17. If they refuse to listen to them, Tell it to the church. Who's the church? Us. Tell it to the church. Here's where you as a church body get involved. This is where the old elders start getting involved. Could you imagine an unrepentant person sitting here being judged by the church because of their sinful ways? But then it goes on. If they still refuse to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remember, he's speaking to Jews here. Be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, if, if, if I refuse to listen to Kelly, to Ben, to Barbara, to you, the church, and also to the elders, I am to be removed from the church. Some people call this excommunication. I am to be removed from the church because I am deliberately being rebellious to God. 
deliberately being rebellious. And my deliberate rebelliousness and sinful ways, my unrepentant ways, will start affecting the body here. In all the little conversations after service, over a cup of coffee, it will start to penetrate. Oh, did you, did you see this, pro- this program? Or whatever it might be. Well, you should check it out. What about read this book that is very unchristian? Yeah, you should check it out. Now, this may sound harsh, a very harsh outcome for me to be, to be put out, if you will, from the body. But remember, this is Jesus talking here. This is Jesus talking. And the purity and holiness of his church is so important to him. Confronting a fellow believer's sin may be difficult. It may be difficult. But it is worse for them, their family, and us in the church if we don't. It's all about restoration. We do it in love because we want to see that brother or sister restored. We're not doing it because we're trying to be horrible. The heart behind it is a cry, God, please restore them. Please open their eyes. Could this be a lot of the reason behind why Jesus' church has such a bad name around the world, particularly in the West, because of the things they're doing? Is it because there's a lot of unrepentant sin? Sin that isn't being challenged. It's just being allowed just to ooze through Jesus' church. See, our desire is for scenario two to be the case. Kelly challenges me. And in that rebuke, I feel convicted. I feel remorseful. I not only humbly say sorry to God on my knees in prayer, but I willingly go to the trustees of the church who are ultimately responsible for the chairs. I own up to my wrong deed and I apologise to them. And by God's help and guidance and, and, and by love and support from the church, I strive to live differently to that way. Aligning myself to God, to the way that God expects me to live. Isn't that a wonderful outcome? And we praise and celebrate because a brother or sister's been restored. Remember at the heart of a loving challenge and a rebuke of a brother or sister for their sin should be their restored and realigned walk with Christ. Is that not discipleship in practice? It's discipleship in practice. It's not the the great, wonderful aspect of discipleship we we all want to do. It's the hard aspect of discipleship. It's the tough aspect of discipleship. But it's discipleship nonetheless. That brings us on to forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's one of the hardest words, or it's one of the words we say often. It's one of the hardest words to action, isn't it? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act that is given willingly 
and freely by the person or persons who have been wronged to the offender who has confessed and repented. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is an act that is given willingly and freely by a person or persons who has been wronged to the offender who has confessed and repented. It is the act by which the wronged person completely releases and lets go of any anger, resentment, bitterness or disappointment that they feel toward that person for their actions. So in our chair example, if I can go back to that, I've confessed and repented my sin. So Jesus expects Kelly, the trustees, and if it's gone all the way through, even the church, to forgive me. I.e., to completely release and let go of any bitter, bitterness, anger or disappointment that they had in me for my actions. Anything they felt toward me for stealing the chair and to never hold it against me again. As Jesus' church, there is an expectation upon us to approach forgiveness differently to how the world around us deals with forgiveness. That is if we are truly aligning ourselves to God's standard. You see, the world, the world around us believes that forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice. You can choose to forgive a wrong committed to you or you can choose not to. So many people use it as this sort of power over the person that's done them wrong. They hang on to it, hold it over them. But unfortunately, there are consequences to this mindset. Too often, people choose to harbour resentment, to remain angry and bitter toward a person who has done them wrong. And for... For many of these people, they remain in this non-forgiving state of heart for years. For years. Sometimes they're harbouring this in their heart on a situation that's happened years ago by someone who hurt them. That person they haven't seen in 10 years. That person's off living a completely different life, probably in a different part of the country, doesn't even remember what they've done to you. The truth is, though, as Christians, we are called to be different. A lot of the time, we are no different to the world in this situation. Sometimes refusing to forgive and let go of the hurt someone has done to us, even after, and this is so true, even after the person who wronged you has confessed and repented. Even after they've confessed and repented, we still hold something against them because of it. 
No, I do not want you to misunderstand me here. I am not downplaying at all or making light the terrible hurt that people have experienced, particularly in the church in this context. The hurt that people have experienced, nor am I saying that forgiveness is easy. Please don't misunderstand me. Forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is not forgetting, and forgiving does not necessarily mean fully trusting that person again. There is a journey to be had after forgiveness is given. And that can take time. But it doesn't release us from the responsibility that we have as Christians to forgive. I wonder how many, how might this harboring of anger, this bitterness towards someone who has wronged you or wronged me, how is it affecting your life? How is it affecting your peace? How is it affecting your walk with the Lord? Jesus' challenge in our passage today is that the the forgiving of a repentant believer in the church, in the body, who has done us wrong, is not a choice. He commands it. He commands it. It is something God expects of us as his people. It says, if your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And if they sin against you seven times in a day and turn to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive them. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. Now, we're not to take this seven literally here, but to understand that Jesus is saying that every time a fellow believer sins against you in the body of Christ, whether personally or corporately as a church, and is truly repentant for their actions, we are to, through prayer and God's help, forgive them, i.e. release them. Let go of any anger, resentment, bitterness, disappointment we feel toward them for their actions. But it doesn't mean, like I've said, we instantly start trusting them again. Well, there's a journey. There's a journey. It doesn't mean we, 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 we instantly forget what they've done. It's a journey with God's help but we are called to forgive them. But we may ask, God, how can we justify, how can we justify forgiveness of of, uh, even after someone has repented? Well, as always, our answer is found at the cross. Our answer is found at the cross. It always is. When Jesus hung on that cross and he looked down and he observed the Roman soldiers who were gambling for their clothes, for his clothes. 
and the religious leaders who were standing afar off and they were mocking him. The crowd who were blaspheming against him. The thief on the cross who was jeering at him. He had every right to withhold any forgiveness and remained angry against them. But he didn't, did he? He didn't. Instead, he showed them love, mercy and compassion and prayed to God the Father for him to forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now that forgiveness happens if any of these people, the soldiers, the the priests, come to that point of, oh my gosh, what have we done? God forgive me. Or they just continued believing that they were right in what they did and they will face the consequences of that on Judgment Day. But he prayed that God would grant them forgiveness if they repented of what they were doing. He didn't... (laughs) Paul says in Romans... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's very easy, isn't it, how we can sometimes put ourselves on a pedestal when we're wronged. And in Ephesians, he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We wronged God, every single one of us. Every single one of us. We wronged God. We had no hope and we were destined to suffer the consequences of our sinless rebellion toward God. But because of God's great love and mercy, he gave us a way out. Praise God he did. Jesus hung on that cross on our behalf and paid the ransom, the debt to God that we owed him for all of our wrongdoing. And in doing so, provided us a way to freedom, to reconciliation, to hope, and to what? We've just been looking at it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. But only for the, for the confessing and the repentant of heart. For those people who confess their sin before God, turn from their sinful ways and place their faith In Jesus, for them, for them, they are given the right by God to become children of God. What an honour. And set free from death and restored in right relationship with God the Father and are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What a gift. And as the writer of Hebrews says, God will be merciful toward our iniquities and he will remember our sins no more. Can I invite the band up, please? Church, if you're able to, 
Can I invite you to stand with me, please? And if you're able to, without wobbling or falling over, would you join me and just maybe close your eyes? We're just going to have a time of reflecting and responding to the truths that we've heard today. See, when we think back over these three words, rebuke, repent, and forgive, we are reminded that they are all at the heart of the gospel message. They're all there. And they are all crucial to right living with Christ. So as we humbly stand before the Lord now, let me ask you, What sin do you need to bring before the Lord this morning? God knows our hearts. You may be able to hide it from the world around you, but God knows. What sin do you need to bring before the Lord? Maybe you need to actively ask God to reveal any unrepentant sin that may be lurking in your heart. Don't be afraid to do so. He will reveal it, but he will help you through it. Has someone rebuked you maybe recently for a sin that they've seen you doing in your life? How did you respond to that? Did you respond in the right way? Has the Holy Spirit been trying to rebuke and get hold of you for a sin in your life, but you've been ignoring him? Don't ignore him this morning. Sin is a poison that will affect us and hold us back from all the Lord wants us to be in him. Who have you knowingly wronged? Who do you need to go to at some point, maybe after the service or this week? Who do you need to apologise to? Who do you need to confess to and ask forgiveness from? Maybe here today, lost. Without Jesus in your life, 
you may be weighed down by the sin in your life. You may be here because you need forgiveness and love. If that's you, then I encourage you to reach out to Jesus. Reach out to Jesus. Just speak to him. He's listening. Confess any known sin to him. You don't have to say any big fancy religious words. Just talk to him. Just like you would talk to anyone. Say, I need you, Lord. I need you in my life. I've tried all the other ways and it just doesn't work. I need you. Ask him into your heart. Ask him to come and be the Lord of your life. With our eyes remaining closed, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to go into a time of sung worship with our voices Firstly, in glory to God, because that's right to do. But secondly, because it's in response of our time together this morning. And just a reminder, the prayer area after the service is open. You need prayer. If you need someone to hold your hand and take you on this journey, do not be afraid to come and ask. We're a family. That's what we do. So Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had this morning. We thank you, Lord, that though it isn't easy to hear Your truth is life to us. And as we reflect now, Lord, you know, you know the prayers that have been lifted to you by your people here. You know what they've asked. You know what has been revealed to them. But you are a God of mercy and grace and compassion. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to minister to us through your Holy Spirit. That you give us the confidence to be honest with you, to reach out to brothers and sisters in the church, be honest with them and ask for their help and guidance. Lord, and if there's anyone here this morning that isn't walking with you but has given their life to you, who needs you desperately. I pray you give them the confidence to come to the prayer area, to come and see us. We love you, Lord. We are here because of you and we are here always for you. In Jesus' name, amen.